was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. I am thrilled to be able to introduce our guest today, Steve Ross. Steve Ross, known to many as the crown prince of cabaret, is a legend who might be known to you as the best modern interpreter of the works of Noel Coward and Cole Porter. You might have seen him in his previous residencies at the Algonquin, Ted Hook's Backstage, or at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He was also featured on the big screen in Big, and on Broadway he was in Present Laughter, as well as starring with K.T. Sullivan in Love Knoll at the Irish Rep. As a cabaret revivalist and a performer of the Great American Songbook, he does acts comprised of the music and lyrics of Irving Berlin, Alan J. Lerner, and many others. He is a familiar face to those who frequent Birdland, 54 Below, and any other popular night spot in Manhattan. So without further ado, here is part one of my interview with the man himself, Steve Ross. I first want to ask you, how did you begin singing? Oh, Way back then, huh? Yeah. Dang, I, I didn't sing in the beginning, but I began singing professionally only when I came to New York City. Oh. I never thought I had a voice. And uh, so when I came to town and I went to this club and they they said, well, if you want this job, you have to sing too. And I said, do, he said, do you sing? And I wanted the job. And I said, yeah, I'll sing some. I had sung a couple of times there as a guest artist, but I never really, so I was just singing funny songs and uh, little patter songs and nothing serious. Yeah. No no ballads or anything. <laughs> I didn't think anybody would be interested in that. So I did um, patter songs and English musical songs, and that seemed to fill the bill. Yeah. And that was how I got into the singing part, because that's what the job required. And now I can't imagine performing and not singing. Yeah. But, uh, that's how it all started. Did you come from a theatrical family growing up? Um, not particularly, no. I had my own personal Auntie Mame. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, who was my mother's sister. And uh, we lived with them in New Rochelle, of all places. Uh, in uh, when I was quite young, and she, uh, but she, we, we had always had a kinship because of, of all of the five of us. That I was the one that had music, and that I, she took me to New York for the first time oh. when we lived there. She's found a, a kindred spirit in me, and I in her, because I wanted to learn all about this stuff. And I know she knew how to dance, so she taught me how to ballroom dance. And she loved to sing, so she uh, encouraged me with pop songs of the day, just singing along with her and listening to the radio and hearing the voice. So she was my conduit to to the musical life that I 
ultimately was happy to, to, to possess. The piano, my mother's, she was the musician oh. in it. So mm -hmm. the piano playing came from her, and uh, the singing and the rest of it, and the showbiz part came from my aunt. Was performing always what you wanted to do growing up? No. No. It was, I did, because it was a way to, I don't know, make people love me, have people applaud. And yeah. there, there was an old, uh, uh, there was an ad for piano lessons that used to be in the newspaper. And the byline was, they laughed when I sat down to play. Meaning, but they didn't laugh when I started to play. So I, that was the one way that I tried to prove myself or to give my, I wasn't a sportsman. I didn't, yeah. I wasn't dumb. I wasn't particularly excelling in school. But the one thing I could do was to play the piano. So yeah. I started playing the piano at a very young age and did piano recitals. And then when I went to school, I played in the variety shows that they had at school. So that was my claim to fame, as it were. And it's, I never thought it would, I didn't know for sure it would be my life's work. So when I was going to school, I went here, I was in the army, I was in seminary, I did a lot of different things. But wherever I went, I always played the piano. And so when I got out of, in the early 20s, when I got out of those other occupations, I was thinking about what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, I started playing in little saloons, and my mm. mother had a friend who had a trio, and I started uh, playing for that and making money at it, which was very exciting. And um, that, as they used to say in country songs, that was all she wrote. And But piano playing was definitely before singing for you, before performing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I played the yeah. piano from when I was six or seven. I, because my mother was the pianist and I played by ear. And uh, I studied off and on. I didn't ever have the, uh, how do I say, persistence to become a classical concert person with yeah. all the attendant hours and hours of practicing and devotion to it. So uh, I guess I was too much of a ham. I liked, I liked the applause, and I liked the easy life, and I liked the, the glitz of it all, and I didn't really envision myself, you know, sitting and practicing for five hours a day, So I, which is what I never did. I, piano playing got me into a social life. Yeah. I always say everybody I've ever, everybody in my life, yourself included, I guess by now, <laughs> that I've ever met really has come through music. Lovers, yeah. friends, business opportunities, travel, they've all come through this great gift of music, and I'm very grateful for it. Yeah. So you were saying, you were mentioning that you served in the army, and what yeah. was it like to do that, and did you have to fight, or...? No, did I you... didn't serve in active duty. Oh. I was in the army right before the Vietnam War became something very important. I was drafted as they were, as we were in those days. I remember I was playing at a, my, one of my first jobs was playing, my first real job was playing at a ragtime piano bar in Washington. And I love mm -hmm. ragtime music. So I, I remember there and 
um, I just got my letter of report to the draft board, and everybody I knew was, most of my friends were drafted, or many of them were, and uh, so I went down there, and I got in. I mean, yeah. I, I think there was some mistake, actually, because it was funny. My mother worked for the government, and I think she was trying to pull some strings to oh. have me stay in Washington, but I think they misread it, so I ended up <laughs> in Washington State, which was fine. I had a, a, a nice time. I was spared the uh, demands of going uh, on to active duty. My brothers were in active duty, but I, I didn't. And I had a pretty easy time of it. I was a chaplain's assistant, which meaning I was on a, I was on a base and I worked for the chaplain of the base. And there was a crazy guy on, on the base who put on shows. Oh, like mm-hmm. maybe if you, there was, there was a great television show called MASH that spoke yeah. about all the funny things. And so he put on shows and he got everybody dressed up and I played the piano and they had these variety acts. So I was, I was in heaven doing all that because there I was playing the piano again. Yeah. I recently, uh, as a matter of fact, someone recently sent me a video of me playing in, in this show. Oh, in really? 19, in 1962. Anyway, so I've, as I said, the music has always, always been a part of my life. And then when I came out of all of that, and I started, I realized that I could have fun and make music. So that's why I kind of just did that until I moved to New York and never looked back. And at what point did you move to New York? And how did you decide to? Uh, how shall I put this? Well, when we lived in New Rochelle, my little auntie Mame took me back and forth to New York. So I knew about, I saw my first musical, I saw my first play. So I knew about New York City. I remember it very well. All throughout my 50s and and all throughout the 50s and 60s, I would be visiting up here with friends. And um, I, I, how shall I say this? Uh, I was in therapy at the time, we, everybody was, because something yeah. had to be wrong, right? And uh, and I always tell the story, it's not exactly true, that I was uh, speaking about my inner life, and I, I note that the therapist had dozed off, and I said, that, well, the writing is on the ceiling. I was on the couch at the time. I think the time is for me to leave New York, leave Washington, and just drive up the turnpike and take the chance. So that's exactly what I did. It was one of those things that was time. I, you can't retrace steps. I wish I'd come earlier, but listen, one's life is what one life is. And I got here when I was about 30. And um, soon after I got here, I got playing music. I didn't know what would happen. I thought I would be a clerk and just go to shows. And But when I got a job playing the piano, and I, I've always worked playing the piano, I've been very lucky. Yeah. So, how did you begin your residency at Ted Hook's Backstage, which was, I think, your first? That was great. Uh, that was probably one of my first big jobs. I've, I had some other jobs in small little blocks around town, but that was my first significant job, maybe in the 70s. Uh, the 77, I guess it was. That well, it, we'd heard about this new place that Ted Hook had. You maybe in your exhaustive research have done 
have learned a little bit about that place. He was a a very clever, very flamboyant guy who had danced in movies on, in Vegas and was Tulula Bankhead's personal assistant. And he was a little larger than life, but very canny about the club that he owned. So mm-hmm. he opened this club, and from the very first night, we all went in the beginning because it was about show business. Very first night, it was a huge success. There was something about the vibe of the place. There was something about the energy of the place. And I used to go all the time. And uh, they had a piano bar at which the piano bar ultimately played it. But there was an extraordinary pianist and Broadway guy of whom you may know, Peter Howard. Oh, yes, yeah. Dance arranger. He he was in, as a matter of fact, he played the band in Barnum on stage. And he was a terrific guy and a great pal of mine, a great encourager of mine. So he was playing the piano there, doing every known show tune. Because, and then the stars would come. Mm-hmm. Ted very cleverly sent out announcements backstage to all of the shows that were running. And he said, come by, first week, drinks on me. And everybody came. Um, then the word got around very quickly that this was the happening place. And this was the great showbiz bar. And they had a piano and they had good food and they had a bar. And it was a big success, the place, I have to say. And I had it was a great chapter in my life because all these people would come in and he would always introduce them and they'd get up and sometimes they would get up and sing and I would play for them. Sometimes they would just stand up and be introduced. And many great people who were still around in the 70s at performing or only recently retired, came into that place. So it was very exciting for everybody from Liza to all kinds of different people came in there. Yeah. What are some of the stories? I know that Ginger Rogers was also someone who came in. Oh, yes. What are some of the stories that you have about playing for these people? Yeah, I was trying to think. Nothing Nothing very dramatic. The Ginger Rogers story, would you like to hear that one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with the, uh, well, she, she had come, I think, for the, would it be the 50th, 35, or the 40th reunion for Girl Crazy, oh. in which she, Ethel Merriman stayed. I forget, wasn't that around 35? I think it was. Anyway, she was back in town, and she was still performing, and she had done MAME, and, of course, Ginger Rogers, my idol, already was Fred Astaire, because mm-hmm. he... I'll, more on that in a moment, if you want. And so she, anyway, she came to the club because everybody came to the club, and he asked her if she would sing, and she said sure, which was great. And I, she, she said, "Well, I said, what would you like to sing?" She said, "Well, I'll sing the song I sang in the show, but not for me, the Gershwin's tune." Yeah. And and she was there by the piano, and I said, "Miss Rogers, do you know what key you sing in?" No, but I do remember one beautifully manicured red nail coming down on this note and she said i don't really know my key honey but here's my top note you figure it out <laughs> that was the kind of thing that happened and um merman never sang merman came in she she never sang casually at a place that she was a great friend of ted's because he knew all these people from hollywood and from broadway from the years before and they all came but they never sang and miller came never sang uh, who are the other people I saw? <coughs> um, gosh, uh, I do remember uh, um, Russell Knight. I remember he got on top of the piano and did a dance in his number. 
that was one thing. And um, does the name Kay Thompson mean anything to you? Great oh, arranger, great oh. dancer in Funny Face, great pal of Liza Minnelli's. She came, clambered over the piano and sang and played. And Mel Torme sang wow. one night. And, um, oh, there were so many. I, I'm trying to think of the stories that would be connected. Uh, there weren't really many stories other than the fact that they were introduced and they got up and they sang and I had a thrill. Well, Liza used to come in quite a bit. Oh, really? And she, and she came and it was around, it was in the 70s and she was in the prime. So many of these folks who are no longer with us or in retirement, she was in the prime of her career. Yeah. And she came and... Uh, she got up and sang as a camp, and and her backup singers were Cheetah Rivera and her daughter Lisa Mordenti. I don't uh -huh. know what they sang, but everybody. It was a place of great joyful musical uh, expression, and I would play there. I think I started at nine, and uh, I ended up at around one o'clock, and. The, um, they wanted me to sing there too, but everybody else was singing. So finally, a little by little, I started singing later on in the evening when um, nobody else was, maybe somebody hadn't come in. But Ted used to love to introduce, he had to introduce somebody. And one night he introduced, I think, the second lighting technician for a show that was running. But so he stood up and everybody. One of the great parts about that uh, was concurrent with my time there was a huge hit right next door at what was uh, at the theater. I don't know what they call it now. It was the, uh, what was that theater? Anyway, it's right next to the, to backstage on 45th Street. The Martin Beck, that's what it was. Oh. And, uh, it was the residency of a, a marvelous production of a play called Dracula with Frank Langella. And mm -hmm. a lot of those people would come in every night. And as a matter of fact, they, it was right next door. So they, formed a big part of business for Ted Hook. And I've heard many stories that were very touching to me that when I've met younger people later on, they said, we heard about backstage and I was in Iowa. And I'm, as soon as I graduated, I got on the bus and I came to New York and now I came to the backstage the first night I was in town. That was kind of exciting and fun and a little bit of a, a movie type of thing. But it did happen. Many people loved there. And the nice part about it was that the civilians and the stars felt quite comfortable there. They, the stars knew that they were not going to be bugged by people looking for autographs. That was forbidden. Yeah. And, the, and the civilians got a chance to ride home and say, gee, at the next table, Tennessee Williams was sitting where I was tonight. So it was a very happy uh, and, and successful mix of showbiz stars and people who liked them. Yeah. So I want to ask you, for someone who might be starting out on the opposite path as you, meaning starting with singing, do you think that playing the piano is an important skill to have? I would think that it's helpful, although I know many people, I certainly know many great operatic stars who couldn't play or read music. Okay. They learned by someone who was called a repetiteur, who just rehearsed with them until their ear picked up the tune. So it's not required. It's certainly helpful if you know music, especially when days become uh, happy again as far as the performance goes. Uh, mm -hmm. It just helps 
if they give you a song, hey, here, learn this tune, maybe if you can pick it up quickly, you can these days have somebody make a track of it and learn it from that. I wouldn't say it's, it's a requirement, but it, it certainly is an aid, and it, it helps you when you're trying to talk to a pianist who's accompanying you. You little bit, you know a little bit more about how to talk to him to play the way you want to hear it. So it's it's important. I wouldn't say it's vital, though. Yeah. So during this time, what was some of the repertory you developed in terms of songs to play or sing? Uh, during my backstage days. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of one of the songs they all remember, and it was a song of the day. You may or may not well. You know everything. Uh, it was it was an off Broadway review called Tuscaloosa's Calling Me, But I'm Not Going. And I used, I used to play the title song of that. It was about staying on in New York and, and loving it here. Everybody loved that because it was such a New York place. Yeah. So I, I did a lot of New York songs. Um, I did Sweet and Lowdown, was a Grishman song. Um, I did, uh, I when I did... I wasn't such a big ballad singer in those days. Yeah. The job or that I, I didn't really feel I had any. Um, I certainly had emotions and sentiments and passions in that, but I didn't really feel I had a voice to that would convince anybody that I was singing a love song. So I sang the way I always had, um, snappy little ditties. I had started singing ballads in my previous job. But I can't remember uh, exactly too many of the songs that I sang in those days. One of the songs that I sang, it's on my, the, the album I made that has all of those songs on it, oh. uh, was called, the debut album called Just With My Name, Steve Ross. And um, I sang, gosh, I sang a couple of ballads, I can remember that. I think I always sang, I always sang Cole Porter from wherever I, Whenever I worked anywhere, I always played and sang Cole Porter songs because he was and remains, I suppose, my favorite, if I had to say. Mm-hmm. So I would do Night and Day, of The Still of the Night, Anything Goes, some of the big Cole Porter hits. And uh, I, I remember Sweeney Todd was there during those days, and I think I sang uh, Nothing's Gonna Harm You. I think I sang a couple of songs from... Yes, and Sondheim was around because company had already started in 1970. So I would sing, I think I sang Sorry, Grateful, and a couple of Sondheim songs, and I sang uh, a Gershwin song called Soon. There were a whole bunch of them. I played more than I sang in those yeah. days because people was at a piano bar and they wanted to hear it, and I didn't sing all the songs they wanted to hear, so I would <laughs> play them. But it was it worked out fine, actually. It worked out fine. And I got my singing chops together and people enjoyed it. It was a mix it wasn't a focused show in those days, which that came later or after when I went to the Algonquin Hotel and that was the first time I did shows as such, as opposed to just being at the piano and singing and playing and mixing it up. Yeah. So when you're sort of developing an act or a cabaret performance, how do you sort of research the songs to perform? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I knew a lot of the standards. I knew a lot of 
songs from what is now termed, it wasn't always termed this from the great American songbook, as they now call it, as you know. Yeah. But I grew up with those songs. I grew up with the songs. I started playing, you know, in the, in the 50s, and the songs from the 40s and 30s and 20s, they were part of a, a cocktail pianist repertoire. You had to learn all these tunes. Yeah. Um, I did, and people knew them, and uh, they asked for them, and I would play them, and they would recognize them. So I was very lucky that I got a grounding in popular songs, great American popular songs, and th some theater songs as well, 20s, 30s, and 40s. Uh, so I, that was I, my first introduction to that. Am so I, I coached a lot in those days, and I uh, worked with a lot of singers, and sometimes if they had a great song and they were singing it for an audition or something, I, I, I learned it, and I, I would perform it myself if I felt that I could identify with that song. And make it my own, and so I learned. I learned a couple of pop songs in those days. I remember pop it fifty years ago. There's a beautiful Jim Croce song called "Time in a Bottle." I remember singing that a lot. And uh, so I wouldn't necessarily research them. I'd hear about them, or I also, if I were looking for songs, I had a, uh, I had the big song books. In those mm -hmm. days, there were very strong, not lyric books, but big song books. It was the Gershwin song book, the Cole Porter song book. And they had every known song in it. So I would go through and figure out um, about when when these songs were, and if I liked seeing them, and if, uh, if they would work. Then I would look for the funny songs. It's hard to find really funny songs. Yeah. Ladies have Ladies have a better time singing funny because they could be a little bawdy, a little risque. But guys, the theater songs, there aren't that many really funny theater songs. So I always always been a logophile, so I went for the words, which is yeah. good because I didn't have this big voice. So I went for the words, and that's, why, that's what drew me to Noah Coward, because they were witty and amusing, not laugh-out funny, but they were that way and I so I would be able to vary my repertoire by doing some of those songs which I've done forever and that would be it's the comic relief meaning you sing a couple of fast and funny songs and then when the ballad comes around it has a little more meaning because of its contrast yeah so do you you've been called a cabaret revivalist do you prefer doing songs that are more famous or do you prefer sort of finding less known songs and bringing them back into yeah i uh, i didn't know i didn't know that moniker cabaret revivalist oh okay uh well uh i like both there's nothing there's something always to be said for uh the familiar the power of the familiar so i i try to and on my recordings as well, I try to do some well-known ones. Maybe the majority would be more or less familiar in those days. And then I would throw in a couple of ones that I had discovered just on my own, listening to albums, listening to the Ben Bagley albums that you now know about, yeah. and finding gems from there. So I would mix it up. I, I think it's important to do a balance. So when I do a show now, I 
if I ever get a chance to do one again, I hope, uh, I would mix it up with songs that people know because that's comforting and they can sit back and not have to think too much about it. But also it's nice to challenge them a little bit and not do songs that everyone knows. I mean, if, if we were not in New York City, if we were not in this apogee of culture that New York seems to represent, um, they would be very wary of anything they didn't know. But that just goes with being people. And not, but we, our case here are a little bit more refined. I don't say that's no better or worse. It's just an observation. New York mm. is more challenging. So I think people will always will be a little bit more uh, accepting of something that isn't in the standard fare. But if I when I do a show, if I were to go to another town or something like that, then you go to a place like Vegas, and everybody knows all those songs because they don't want anything necessarily new. They just they would they would like the artist to sing the songs they know connected with them, stuff like that. So yeah. I, I mix it up. Back. Well, I know that you've also written some things for yourself, but have you also had songs written specifically for you by other Good people? Question. Yeah, good question. No, I, I did have some. T yeah, I've had people send me songs. They still do. I'm very flattered that they. Uh, sometimes they add a little dollop of guilt. I remember getting a song, a couple of songs. Only you can make this song alive. Um. And I thought, oh God, <laughs> quite true. But they were laying that on me, so I have gracefully ways to say uh, you always acknowledge the fact that they've sent you the song and it's, it's very nice and and um, many of the songs that i get are quite good songs yeah uh, but i don't have the opportunity always to introduce a lot of new songs as i said and the the difficulty is that there's in quality they're standing up against Gershwin Porter, Kern, and Rogers. So yeah. they have to be pretty darn good. Uh, sometimes they make up for it in novelty, and sometimes there are many composers over these last decades have written beautiful songs that are not connected with shows, but just are writing great songs and very, well, very nice. People from the generation after me, and of course there are generations after these people, but People like Craig Carnelia, but they're lovely people, and their songs, they were written for all of those singers from those days, and who were singing, and yeah. that was, there were many, many songs that were very successfully written for people who introduced them and sang them, and then, then we, that's one category. So no one's written a special song for me that I've ever done. I mean, they try to say, only you can make this happen, and I said, well... Maybe. <laughs> uh, I, no, no one has ever written something especially for me, but that's all right. I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of songs to pick out that I make sound. I think the high praise for a singer, that's interesting, high praise for a singer would be if the audience felt that, gee, that song was written especially for you. But that would be high praise if the singer was so successfully had so successfully taken possession of that song and infused it with his or her own emotions and intellect so that it sounded tailor-made. You know, you could, yeah. if you have talent, you can make any song sound that way. I guess if you really know what you're doing. 
Well, you might be most known for interpreting the music and lyrics of Noel Coward. So what do you think it is about his style and his songs that come so naturally to you? Yeah, it would be Coward. I, I, Coward and Porter, I suspect, yeah. are both. I've had uh, a lot of success with Coward recently because of the play that I was in. And, and uh, I have been doing his songs for a very long time. I think it's just the, the dazzling word play, which amuses me so much. I've always been an Anglophile. I've always loved the English sense of humor, the English sense of satire. Ever since I first began listening to recordings, the first ones I ever heard were Gilbert and Sullivan. And they are the granddaddies of musical theater, as you know. Yeah. And um, so I, I was aware of the marriage of the word, the funny word, and the music. And there was another famous team uh, in the 50s and 60s that really uh, solidified my um, desire to sing funny songs. And my English people was a, a team called Flanders and Swan. And they did a lot of very funny songs. See, I knew I could make a point if the song were witty and wordy, because I knew I could handle that. Yeah. And I loved doing that. So that was something that always drew to me. And of course, Howard's such was that his protean talent that he he wrote very beautiful ballads as well, as they all mm -hmm. did. But he was very famous for his upbeat songs like Don't Put Your Daughter on the Stage and Mad Dogs and Englishmen. But he also could write very beautiful ballads. If love were all, I'll see you again. And so when I started singing creeping over into the ballad repertory i certainly went with him and um i enjoyed it very much and now, now i can't imagine singing uh, a, a show without singing coward or porter and also some french and german too but those two along with the other greats would are, would be the mainstays of my repertoire i would have to say kern and the ones that we all know plus we don't. I don't have to do songs that are connected with a given composer. The best yeah. kind of show I like to do is a mixed bag of shows. I could do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But in those days, when I started at the Algonquin, theme shows became very popular. So it would be an evening of Jerome Kern, an evening mm. of Cole Porter, an evening of Gershwin. And cabaret artists... Uh, weren't doing so much of those, as a matter of fact. They might be recording an evening. You know the name Bobby Short? But, uh, yes, yeah. Who? Uh, the great. He was my idol. He was the reason oh. I moved to New York. I wanted to be like him. And he never did a themed show, but he recorded many of them. He recorded albums of, of uh, Kern and Gershwin, uh, certainly Cole Porter and Noel Carrick. So the theme thing came to be a selling tool. So when I was at the Algonquin, I did, as I said, an evening of this and an evening of that. And it was, it was a marketing tool. And it was also interesting for me because when you, go to, when you go to an art museum and you see a room full of paintings by one artist, it does kind of encourage you to compare and contrast one to the yeah. other. And here's his early song, here's his early painting, and here's a later one. So it was a useful exercise for me to get to know the composers a bit better. 
and learning this, their unknown songs and their known songs. I have a lot of those kind of theme shows that I've done over the years, and I've, I've enjoyed them. And it's very popular in the cabaret world to do an evening of somebody songs. And then all the great themed reviews came along, the Ain't Misbehavings and mm-hmm. other reviews that were honoring one given composer became very popular. And I, I like that. My, my preference is to do the mixed bag, but I certainly am very happy if they say, Gee, can you give us an evening of Cole Porter? And I said, with pleasure, and I do. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about how have you sort of developed your cabaret patter over time? The patter, yeah. Well, I never thought as much. In... As a bit of history for you, when people would do Vegas acts, you know, all the big stars did all these Las Vegas acts, and they would hire someone to write their patter. And this is what they did every night. So uh, it was all very, very planned. We knew exactly what you were going to say, and that was all fine. Uh, As far as myself goes, I... People say, oh, well, I certainly enjoy learning about the songs. I must tell you this. In the beginning, a hundred years ago, when I first sang in the 80s, I never said anything. Oh, really? I never said, I never said anything between songs. I didn't know you, I wasn't comfortable doing that. My very first um, time that I heard Mabel Mercer, a name known to you, I'm sure, in the yeah. cabaret world, right? Yeah. Uh, and she never sang, never, never talked between her numbers. Never said, oh, here was a song, and I met Cole Porter in Paris, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> she murmured the next title, title to her pianist. But it was a, a, an absolutely satisfying musical experience, and we didn't have to learn anything about the song. She told us what was necessary to be told in her words and in her performing. So that's what I did for a long time. I I sang a song and then I sang another song. But somehow when the themed show started coming in, I realized that I had to say a little something. So I would talk a little bit about Cole Porter's early life or here was a song he wrote when he was working here in Paris or New York. So little by little, I would give background music, background words to the song. And people seemed to like it. I know I like it and I suspect you would like it because we're always learning about these things. And I, I love learning about songs that, that's why all the books, I like reading the bios, learning learning what went on behind the songs. Like well, mm-hmm. last night when you had all the presidential stuff, there were some fascinating little tidbits that I had never learned. And I was mm-hmm. really intrigued by that. And I thought, this is cool. I really like learning about the material. But all, mm-hmm. if all else fails, I just sing the song. But I don't have a funny anecdote about the song necessarily, but I remember if I had to say something, Frank Sinatra, another one of my great heroes, of course, uh, he wouldn't say, oh, well, I first heard this when I was touring. Or I, he, he would always give the composer and the arranger. Oh. Of, he would say, this is a song by Cole Porter, arranged by Nelson Riddle, who was his great arranger. So... He, there was a little bit of speaking between the songs, uh, but not that a great amount. And uh, it was only until later when, as I said, I began doing these songs that were based all on one composer that I had to say something. 
Yeah. I remember the first time I, I was very lucky to hear so many of the great singers. I went to hear Peggy Lee at the Waldorf, and um, she was very much her own woman and terrific act. I wish you could have seen her. So cool and warm at the same time and just divine. And she read a poem. And as, as uh, strange as it may sound, uh, to these days when people do everything, it was the first time I'd ever seen that. She said, I have a poem, I have a poem to read about that's going to lead into this next song. And she wrote this beautiful poem. And that opened up my eyes and ears. And I said, I guess any, any words that you can come up with that might predispose or explain the uh, the song that you're about to sing is a useful thing. So I would, especially if I was singing in French or singing in another language, then I would say a little bit about what the songs were. Or if I'm singing Jacques Brel, I talk a little bit about his life, uh, just a little bit. Yeah. A friend of mine used to rail against those who did too much of this, and he said, <laughs> "I uh, the winner of the Shut Up and Sing Award is... And they, they talk too much, and we really wanted to. And sometimes it's not interesting. So that's why it's good to have have it pretty much thought out, what you're going to say, not rambling, you know. Yeah. Uh, so you have to have a focus of what you're going to say, which I generally do uh, when, I, when I say something. But sometimes I go in a given cabaret preparation. I sing a couple of songs without talking in the middle of them, because I think... Sometimes it's helpful, but sometimes if you get into a certain mood, uh, the, the talking maybe breaks it necessarily. So you want to stay in a lovely kind of sentimental ballad mood, you could do two or three songs in a row. Yeah. It, it widely varies, and I, I've done every known approach. So <laughs> I hope that answers your question on that one. It does. And I So you've described No Coward as devilishly witty, so, what are some of your favorite examples of that? Well, he was devilishly witty. And uh, that's what I would look for. This, this was at the end of Marvelous Party. Very mm -hmm. funny song. And very arch and, and coward mm -hmm. in the 20s and 30s and all those supposedly glamorous lives and glamorous people that I always wished I had met. Um, but there's a, 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 a very interesting kernel of truth in this lyric that I referred to. It was devilishly witty, of course. But um, there's a, the last verse of this, is, it's, it's reputedly this crazy party that he went to, uh, with, with Beatrice Lilly in the south of France, hosted by uh, uh, Elsa Maxwell, these great hostess. Um, so what is it? Uh, I went with Martha's party. Um, Maureen disappeared, came back in the beard. Oh, yes. The last bit, we talked about growing old gracefully, and Elsa, who's 74, said, A, it's a question of being sincere, and B, if you're supple, you've nothing to fear. So, she swung upside down from a glass chandelier. I couldn't have liked it more. And all that wittiness and that silliness I found enchanting. But there's something very important about that. If you're supple, you've nothing to fear. It's said in the middle of a funny verse, but I've always thought of that as a great rule of life. If you're supple yeah. in your mind, if you bend and don't break, if you're supple in your body. So suppleness, I think, is one of the goals that I try to keep going. And I, it was first expressed in that song. I mean, I might have learned the lesson elsewhere, but I think the more I work on these songs with, with the singers that I 
coach these days, and I'm, the more truth I realize about love and about important things exists in these great lyrics. And there's gold in them, their lyrics, the lyrics from the 20s, 30s, and 40s, modern ones too. But uh, when you have a song like Dancing in the Dark and uh, Waltzing in the Wonder of Why We're Here, it's the most powerful, beautiful sentence. And it has something to say, but it says it in an artistic way. And sometimes I think if, if the truth comes to the listener through art, it's somehow absorbed deeper into your soul than just reading about it and reading a sentence mm. like that. But if it's in a poem that has already captured your imagination and your feelings, I think it, it starts to mean more. And when you have great songs that uh, have the courage to be to be existential in a way, I mean, uh, on a clear day you can see forever, lost in the stars, it's hard trick to pull off to make a beautiful song also have philosophical import. But when it does, it's, it's quite wonderful. Uh, I, I don't mm. necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily have a whole evening of them, but when a songwriter can pull that off, and this is just a pop song that somebody got up in a band and sang, but when you analyze it, you realize the craft and the art of choosing those words. And that's what really continues to uh, enchant me about singing. I mean, mm. I've sung, I've sung night and day, what, according to my last calculation, 6,422 <laughs> times. I'm joking, of course. Mm. But I have sung it for years and years and years, and I never fail to be moved by by what it says and the music that it takes me to. You can see a, a, a picture on your wall and you could look at it every day and still find something beautiful in it. You could read a great classic poem. So I'm making an analogy of of the message that art has to give. This draws me to these songs and draws me to purvey them because mm -hmm. they've moved me and they've made me feel happy or made me feel in connection with sadness. They might do it for somebody else. And that's the essence of what I do, I think. Well, people have said about you that your performing evokes a style of old New York. So what do you think about this and when people say this? I'm very grateful. You know, people often say, and maybe you said it to yourself, listening to all of us, I wish I had been born in those days. Yeah. Uh, but mm. actually... Listen, we are born when we are born. We have the job in front of us to do. In a way, I'm quite happy to be, as it were, an emissary from those times and to keep alive those songs. That's what the cabaret world is a lot of, especially from the classic material. Uh, so I'm quite happy to live back there. And I do not view it as musty or old-fashioned. I think... The songs are are miniature works of art, and I and I treat them that way. And I'm quite happy to be part of a classic time in New York City. I came mm -hmm. after the classic time would be maybe the 30s and the 40s, as sad as the times were. But um, the buildings, the gracefulness of nightclub life, the joy of having all of the shows on Broadway, all of that which is on hold, 
at the moment, of course, as we know. But yeah. uh, I caught a little bit of that, and it was very exciting to me. So mm-hmm. as I think about it, when I realized that I could put on a tuxedo and go to a, a classic place like the Algonquin Hotel, which indeed was classic New York par excellence, and sing some of these songs, it was a huge thrill for me. As I'm looking back now, feeling that, it was a great honor to be able to, to do that, to bring back or remind people, not necessarily, maybe it was always there lurking, but to reminding people of, of graceful living, of sophisticated words, and of the place that, that New York was, in fact. It isn't that way. It's something else. It always has an energy and a vitality uh, that, that has drawn people from all over the world to come here. But I, I was here, and I was able to, to sing some of the songs from those, quote-unquote, golden years. Yeah. And as I said, they're not museum pieces. They're vital messages of melody and, and words. But I was always felt very uh, lucky that I was able to do that. Yeah. You've actually led me right into my next question, which is, I want to ask you how you got started singing at the Algonquin and playing. Yeah, well, as I said, I've been playing and singing a lot around town. And an extraordinary gentleman came into my life via music, as I said, they've all come from music, who was a great lover of cabaret. Um, And it is a matter of fact... You know about the cabaret convention, do you not? Yes, I do. Yeah. Well, the man who started that was uh, quite an unusual guy named Donald Smith. And he, talk about old New York, he he was in town about 10 years before me. And he got to know so many of the stars that were still around that he made it his business to be connected, connected with the classic theater, ballet, opera, everything that New York had to offer. And... We became friends. He became, by way of a mentor to me, and uh, I was working at Ted Hook's backstage, and he had been, um, but then there was another club after that called On Stage, which was very nice, but the whole thing after the three or four years was beginning to to die out. Its life was over in a way, you know, through some situations that we have to go into. But anyway... Uh, he loved the Algonquin because to him, its history and the round table and Dorothy Park, it represented the apogee of intellect and style and all those things we've been talking about. Yeah. So he was working on the guy who ran it, who had come to see me. He said, you have to put music back in there. And he, he worked on him and worked on him, trying to persuade him. And finally, he did persuade him to do it. And, which was great for me because it was one of the big chapters of my life, working mm-hmm. at that extraordinary place. And they had had cabaret there in the 40s, but not since then. So I came mm-hmm. in 81 and uh, was there off and on for about 15 years. So that was huge for me and because it put me right where I wanted to be with those songs in that atmosphere. And mm-hmm. that's how it happened. It happened because someone believed in me and went to bat for me with the people that he had to go to bat with me for. And uh, granted, I, I think when the guy heard me, 
play at backstage or wherever, he saw in me someone that would reflect the classic nature of his hotel. Yeah. So it was very happy marriage of situation and performer. And that's how I got to the Algonquin, through the uh, efforts of this Donald Smith fellow who informed me in so many ways. And that's the answer to that question. It's all I could think of, actually. So when you first started performing there, were you performing on a semi-regular basis, or how often were you? I think it... I started right away working, I think it was six nights a week. Oh. I think, no, it was five nights and then, maybe I did Tuesday, yeah, I think Tuesday through Saturday in what was then the Oak Room, the name of the place, and then they had another room in the lobby that I played on Sunday afternoons. I played a lot. And Mm -hmm. in the beginning, it was just Steve Ross, I'm just going through some of my old programs, Steve Ross will perform from 9 o'clock. So I would be there from 9 to 1 or how long it was. And um, in those days, it wasn't, uh, there weren't shows as such. You just yeah. did sets. I would be sitting there and then I got up and played some and then I sat down. <laughs> and I got up and played some more. It was a little bit more casual. It wasn't quite as casual as a piano bar because when I went to play, people listened to me. So it wasn't just background noise, but it wasn't set. Actually, I think it was Bobby Short, who at that time was working at the Cafe Carlisle, where he was for 35 years. And I think it was he who, number one, took the pianist's week down to five nights as opposed to six. And, and he never did shows as that, but he did uh, our, it would say, shows at nine and 11. Oh. And as opposed to being between the hours of nine and one. So you would go for a particular show time. And of course, in the old days of those great uh, cabarets and those little blots, uh, as you will probably know, I probably know, they would there would be shows at nine, eleven, and one. Oh, I don't know. Really? I don't know how they were smoking and drinking. <laughs> and they had a one o'clock show and they, they got up and ran their jobs. I don't know how, I never know how they did that. But that was New York in those days to be honest with you. And uh, it was uh, it was quite a scene, actually. There's a wonderful book that I always recommend to everyone. Uh, and you and your research might be interested in It's called Intimate Nights by James Gavin. Do you know that one? I don't, I don't. It chronicles, I'll send you a copy, it chronicles that whole era. So you will have the whole picture of it when you see it. Everything I'm talking about, he talks about me. He talks about from the 30s on, which is when these little cabarets kind of started. The 30s on to the, to the 80s. It's, it's quite an important volume. I'll give it to you. Anyway, so that was what I was doing in those days. And loving every minute of them. So when you were doing shows at the Algonquin and also at other places later in your career... Have you done yep. have you done singing shows that are somewhat by request, or do you ever sort of take requests? Yeah. Well, um, at a piano bar, you're supposed to, you know you always play, yeah. take requests. That's why you have to learn a hundred songs or a couple of hundred, three hundred. Uh, I uh, I don't take requests when it comes to the moment of it. When, I, when the lights go down, ladies and gentlemen, good evening, welcome to, uh, here's Steve Roy. I, I, I have set my show. So uh, the answer to your question is no. Uh, 
but uh, because I set it up carefully these days to uh, to be the varied. I could, there's something I could do, but you, I, I, I figure out what I want to open with, and I figure out what I want to say when I want to say it and when I want to close it. So it's fairly structured, and that's the way I do things now. Most of acts you go to, they know exactly what they're doing. So they're requesting people who know um, know me and know me for a given song could make a request and then say of the second show I might be able to throw that in. I mean, my business is not to be true to any list that I have prepared, but it is to be true to entertaining them. So yeah. there would be a a pyrrhic victory if I got all my songs in and they they would rather have heard something else. So I kind of do sometimes. I'm very pleased when people say, oh, I love the way you sing that song. Would you sing it? And if I can, of course I will. Well, what other sort of okay. s stories or experiences do you remember from performing at the Algonquin? One of your heroes, if I can say that, is Dorothy Loudon, right? Yes. We love her. Yeah. She can she used to come there quite a bit, and um, and I I rarely had people come up and play and sing. Sometimes they did, and sometimes my show was with a guest artist. I did a lovely show there uh, very early on of no of Noel Coward uh, with a lovely singer, and um, so. But anyway, Dorothy was there, and she was I think uh, feeling no pain. And she, she was outraged, of course. And she said, uh, she said I, I was born in, I think, West Street, Allentown or something like that. And now I want to sing you the song that got me out of Allentown. And she sang some raucous ballad kind of thing, and everybody loved it. And sometimes when, when people would come up, that would be, uh, they would say something, and I would get that. What was nice in... in the um, in those days, in actually in 1990, uh, which was after I started there, I had a radio show. I think I've told you about that called New York yeah. Cabaret Nights. Have I told you about that? Yes, I think you have. You've listened. Uh, you've listened to a couple of those. Well, one of the places we did it was there at um, at the Algonquin and then two um. other venues, which is a lot of fun. So the people got to see chance to see the the Algonquin and. Uh, the other clubs and so as Ethel Merman um, Ethel Merman oh, she came in one night and uh, this is the one I often tell because I was all boned up on rare Ethel Merman songs I heard she was coming in so I uh, sang a song which I had been singing a lot because I learned it from Bobby Short it's a song from Padma Hattie called I'm Throwing a Ball Tonight you know that one? yes I do but, Funny song, fun. So I thought, oh, this is so exciting. I'm go she's going to come in, and no one knew, I mean, no one really knew that she had introduced that song. So she came in, and she was a completely practical woman. This is not given to flights of fancy. Uh, so she came in, and I... I didn't announce her, but I said, well, I started singing the song and thinking that she would drop her fork, look up in wonderment and joy at the fact that I was singing this song. And uh, she never looked up from her pork chops and oh. <laughs> barely applauded. So it was kind of interesting, a life lesson of, because we often ascribe and attribute things to a song. 
that someone might sing. But the person who sang it said, well, it was a nice song. I sang it in the show. And not knowing, or how could they know, that a given song might have a lot of resonance or meaning to the person who was, who was singing it. Yeah. I remember one time also, I did the same kind of thing for uh, Ruby Keeler. She had been in uh, a show in the in the 30s, a Gershwin show called Treasure Girl. And I sang, um, I think I sang a song from Treasure Girl because I was always trying to add the, the little known songs for the, the singers who were there, thinking they might enjoy that because they heard yeah. the main ones all the time. And she did, she said, how did you know that? So I was always... I was glowing that, that she acknowledged the fact that I sang this rare song that she had sung 50 years earlier. So there were some nice little things like that uh, that happened, and people would come in and speak, and not much else. The radio show had more anecdotes, because that's, like you interviewing, I asked them about their early lives, and that was, that was fun. But um, no specific uh, anecdotes, I'm afraid, but just... The pleasure of, of doing it. Yeah. I would like to actually ask you about your radio show. How did you sort of start to do that? Uh, it was, I think, I think I had a, um, I worked for a very long time with a great guy named Peter Ligeti. And it was, I think it could, but he's a great idea man. And I think it was his idea sure. to do this radio show. Yeah. Uh, at uh, which in which I would perform and introduce people who were around in those days, uh, and it was proposed to public radio NYC, WNYC, which is the other public radio station, and they bought it. They bought it and they financed it. I forget somebody paid paid for it. We did two two years of thirteen thirteen nights each night, and. Uh, then Donald Smith got involved with casting it and and putting the talent in there. And that's kind of how it started. And um, I had a blast doing it because I, play, I played for a lot of the singers, although they often had their own uh, pianists. And um, I got to sing. And it was quite grand i had a wonderful time doing that that would be one of the nicest things looking back on my career but i did because it got to it hit on so many things that i love doing i love playing for singers i love mm -hmm. playing for good singers it's a special kind of musical satisfaction to me more than um singing for myself in fact and i love playing for good singers and i love chatting away about songs and so it, it was a it was a good feeling for me to do that, yeah. and you, that's how the, the the radio shows began, and that's how they ended up. As a matter of fact, I'm glad that they are still around. Most of them have been put on the archive of WMIC, which is oh. very nice because I had decaying cassette tapes of a lot of them. But they now are indeed archival. If you think about people who were there 30 years ago, that's a bunch of people, and uh, they were wonderful. So do you think that singing and cabaret can come across just as well without the visual part of it? I would say, depending on the singer, of course. Yeah. I think uh, what was nice about those shows is that there were variety. We had three or four singers, and they were of different styles. 
so they would be the audience the audience would be responding and i think the listener at home and there were many of them had a pretty much of a feeling that they were there because they were live and yeah. that helped them so that when the audience was applauding they kind of were applauding too uh, as opposed to the the challenges of doing Zoom performances when they don't hear any applause and, and have to do it. So they would hear on the radio, and I think they would, it would work very well because, as I said, they were live performances. Some singers can convey more in if, they're, if the visual is there, uh, but some singers, I seem to recall that most of them got their message across just from hearing them. I mean, there are many, many... We grew up not. We grew up listening to people on the radio. They didn't cabaret performance or not, and they didn't have television at the beginning. But um, so I think people got used to experiencing the song from big band broadcasts or singers on recording. So it was not an unusual fact not to see them. As a matter of fact, seeing them was the extra added pleasure. When they mm-hmm. came to New York, they could see the person sing as well as hear them. Some singers, I think, have a genius in uh, conveying so much emotion in their singing. Uh, I, I go to the two greats. I go to Streisand, I go to Sinatra, and many, many others that uh, I've listened to that really convey it all with the sound of their voices and, and the intelligence of their interpretations. And that's that can be done just on record. Well, who were some of the singers that you were most excited to be able to interview and to play for? As it turns out, I just prepared a folder of a lot of these people. Oh. Uh, 19... Uh, April of 1990. Yeah. Uh, gosh. <laughs> that is quite a long time ago, when you think about it. Okay, here, for example, the first season. We had people like, you may or may not know these names, but you might. Julie Wilson, Maureen McGovern was one. A great pal of mine singing well, still Ronnie White. Andrea Marcovici was there for years and years. Uh, uh, who else was here that I'm looking at? Oh, sometimes I would have people just talking. Martin Charnin was a guest I see here. Oh. Anne Hampton Calloway, a name you probably know by now. Yeah. Oh, and on her night, I had Sheldon Hardigan chatting about these things. Arthur Siegel, uh, Susanna McCorkle, wonderful, wonderful artist. Margaret Whiting was there. Mm-hmm. Who else? Barbara Lee. Uh, Joe Sullivan came on and chatted about oh, her mm-hmm. husband's songs. Yeah, Craig Carnelia, Katie Sullivan, of course. Margaret Whiting again. Um, a classic lady really representing New York in those glamorous supper club days was a lady named Hildegard, one Um, one of the first one-name stars. She was a lady from the Midwest, but played very swank places. She was there. Who else do I have on this one? Uh, Sylvia Sims, Mary Claire Heron. Phyllis Newman came and chatted. I I forgot all the... I'm looking at this list, remembering all these people that I had forgotten about. So that's useful. <laughs> there you go. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. 
That's the answer to that question. Those are yeah. some of the people from that first season that, that I had on, on, on the show. One time I remember, uh, I think Cy Coleman came and played. Wow. Um, and pianists who would come along, I think, maybe, whatever. they. But it was a popular show, and it was nice because they knew it was on the level. It wasn't just a, a very, you know, low-key uh, cable thing. Because cable in those days was a little uh, less exalted than it is now. Yeah. But it was an upper show on a good station, and so people seemed to be honored to be asked to be in it. And Donald knew so many of them, and yeah. he got them on there. So that was very helpful. So you've also done extensive performing internationally as well as in New York, including in London and Tokyo and a lot of places. So how do you find that the experience of performing or the audiences are different in different countries? I'm often asked that, but to be honest with you, the people who come to me, they come to me. They already know my product. They know the classic Cole Porter, New York, New York song. Um, I have, if, if an audience is enthusiastic or receptive, then they're the same way all over. However, when I did go to Japan, I played in a, played out there all those years ago, I had been told that I was now made more aware that Japanese audiences are not necessarily in the course of a given show, uh, very demonstrative. Mm. So in a, cabaret, in a cabaret show, you could sing a great song and everybody, yay, yay, happy, happy. <laughs> but there they were quite uh, sitting uh, sitting on their hands. They just didn't do anything. At the end of the show, they were very appreciative. But that was a little disconcerting because I'd mm. been used to this feeding of, of enthusiasm from after each song, the way you go when you hear a show. That's one little difference. But mainly when I went to England, they know so much about the songbook. Yeah. They do shows on the BBC about it. They have been singing American songs for as long as we have because there was great musical commerce back and forth. You know, Gershwin would go to England and bring his shows there. So this back and forth with England and Broadway, the West End of Broadway, has been going on for so long. They know, our, they know just as much about our, our songs as we do, frankly. And it's a bigger pot of gold. They have, they have some very nice songs, but nothing, nothing matches the diversity and the attainments of the songs in our songbook. It's our great mm. cultural export to the world, in fact, I think, one of them. And then in the interpretation of the jazz world, too. But the, these songs, are, at least from those days, uh, were a great cultural, as I said, a cultural export. Because the bands would play them, they would play them in wartime, they would play them uh, and the cabarets that would be in England and Paris in those days. So when I when you get over there, a lot of people know the songs you're going to sing already. And yeah. even if they don't know them, I being from New York and I being from a place that's supposed to know it, then they, they would be happy to hear what I had to say. Where, where else if I play? I was played in, in Brazil also. What's interesting about Brazil is that unlike other countries, Brazil, affluent, educated people there 
always wanted to be in New York. New York was the place they wanted to go to. This is oh. way before Miami. They uh, they thought New York was really it. Of course, it is it. So I, being from New York, I had immediately an entree into their imaginations, and I would sing New York, New York. I wouldn't necessarily sing New York, New York here again, mm-hmm. but they loved it. They loved anything about New York City. So that they were predisposed to that, as opposed to I played once in in Italian, Italian and French boats and everything. They weren't so interested in it. I mean, they they have their own music, and that's kind of what they wanted to hear. It was a different attitude. So. Uh, that, that the difference of that is the what I'm saying is basically so South America, the Far East, and um, and Paris, and London. I've never played in Germany. I wish I could, I haven't. And Paris, I played one night there, and it was just they were very different. They were they were a little bit indifferent to what I had to, had to say. Mm-hmm. Although that was just that night. I mean, I know that Paris, for example is very disposed to American musicals. They have had big productions of a great many shows over there. And uh, on they go. But it's just, that was my one experience that night. So I can't really give a full recounting of um, of all of their opinions. It didn't work for me that necessarily that night. But, it was, um, you know, it was just the way it was. England is far more receptive. And they, there's, it's great yeah. to travel to England. And you will see when you get over there how similar they are in many ways in their musical tastes to us. And they love all our songs, which is very nice to know. Has there ever been a different country that you haven't enjoyed performing in for one reason or another? Right, yeah. Um, I don't know. No, I, um, not really, because the people who engage me already are in touch with the, the, the people who will enjoy me. Yeah. So it, it's never been as if I've been plopped into a place that really had no idea of who he was, who was this person. Uh, that has happened in a couple of uh, situations in New York when uh, um. when I've been asked to play, say, a given person who's part of a charity, at a benefit charity. Um, they say, oh, I, I used to like Steve Ross. Let's get Steve Ross. So I, they come along and I do my stuff. But the uh, they they like me and they think that my work is consonant with their product, if it's a fancy perfume or a line of clothing or something. But a lot of the people who are there have the slightest interest in what I have to say. But yeah. they sit there politely, but I think they'd rather hear a different kind of music than the one I'm putting on. So so sometimes those things can be a little disheartening, but if you're clever, you've you made an arrangement to make a lot of money, so that mm-hmm. kind of uh, soothes the anguish in that one. Yeah. So you performed with Yip Harburg at Lyrics and Lyricists for the... Oh, Yip. what a great man he was. A great, great man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. I was uh, the very first Lyrics and Lyricists was your brother and then i came oh, back man. twice i did the second show that he did about three or four years later and it was thrilling to get to know this man he was wise and funny he was all those things that he should be and it was a, a great treat to hear him he told me once when we were rehearsing they I, everybody i knew seemed to live on central park west in those days they all mm-hmm. these composers lived there and i remember he was looking out and he said humor because he more 
than the others, always had a bit of a political agenda in his in many of his songs, as you know, from Finian's Rainbow and yeah. all of that. And um, he said, uh, if you can count your lyrics in something amusing or in something that made people laugh and with cleverness, you can probably get the message over more people more easily than if you just stated in a rather somber way. So he would have very playful lyrics, that great come and get it day. He'd be mocking uh, the government or something, but he did it in a, in a funny kind of satirical way. And say the great flowering of that would be Saturday Night Live. They don't do songs. But there's a great, as you know, the great cabaret tradition came from satire, came from in Paris, when they would sing satirical songs. Well, you couldn't say that, but you could kind of sing it, and it wasn't considered quite so heavy duty, if you follow me. And um, they would sing satirical songs about things that were going on in the government. Look at Randy Rainbow, if you know who that is. Do yeah. you know who that is? Yes, I do. Yeah. A brilliant guy, brilliant guy, and he and he gets away with murder. But he's, then you think, well, it's just a song. As if he were if he were doing a spiel like Lenny Bruce, he, he might get into trouble. But the fact that he yeah. couches it and he's a cute guy and he couches it in this disarming way, but when you realize what he's saying, it, it's it's pretty uh, to the jugular vein sometimes. But that that's a long tradition in. in cabaret songs and cabaret singing. I myself have never been comfortable in that regard. I don't oh. sing satirical song. I don't um, make political statements, uh, either covert or overt, in what I do. It's just not something I'm comfortable with. And there are enough songs that deal with emotions that I want to communicate. Yeah. Lost love and the things that most of the ballads are about. And funny situations like the Noah Coward songs, that keeps me pretty busy. I don't need to do the others. That You may know in there, uh, there was a very famous guy named Tom Lehrer in the 50s oh, and 60s. Oh, yes. Yeah. And um, that was his stock and trade. He did funny songs, but mildly satirical songs. And that's fine. It's not me. That's just not me the way I do it. But more power to those who do. So you were mentioning Yip Harburg, who you had admired and then got to work with, and have there been right, indeed. have there been other people like that who you've admired for a long time and then got to perform with? Well, I guess uh, when I, I was playing, I, well, the backstage thing when someone like Liza Minnelli got up the microphone, of course that would be someone yeah. I'd always admired, and I even. I conducted her for once on Broadway. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, she was doing a show. She did every year a show for the policeman's benefit, the policeman and fireman, something like that. And uh, I was very delighted that she asked me to conduct. I was petrified. But I did it anyway. So what am I going to get a chance to do this again? So I did it. And uh, actually, her drummer was the mainstay of it, and I was just at the piano waving my hand but it was a great thrill to be kind of behind her musically as well as being out in the audience and experiencing her performing genius because she was and is but it was very very exciting to be kind of part of the music making that she did that was a, 
that was a dream come true. What else? Oh, yes. Someone I always thought was very glamorous and very beautiful was Gloria Swanson, the oh, actress. Yes. And uh, so she was doing uh, some show at, the, fa at the, um, the Plaza Hotel, and I had to play for her, play for her, not necessarily to sing, but I played this strip. She played her on, and, and I, she, she was a singer. You might not know that she was a singer early on in her career. She sang it. She sang in a musical in the mid-30s, and then she sang in some movies. So I did one of her big songs. Love, your magic spell is everywhere. And of course, this is right at the end, more or less, toward the latter part of her career. But people certainly knew who she was. And um, so that was a, a thrill to, to meet someone like that and to, to play for them. I'm trying to think of the other kind of big people I've played for. There was one night... Um, when uh, Donald had arranged it, and it was a book night at the Algonquin. And so famous writers would get up and they tried to sing. Uh, help me, who was the one that wrote? Uh, John Guare. John Guare, no, uh, Six Degrees of Separation, and many other things. He had never sung. So he got persuaded. So he. So it was, it was interesting because so many of these famous people didn't necessarily have confidence in singing. Yeah. That, that wasn't what they did. So many were very, very nervous. And I remember John saying to me, I knew him from Georgetown. He, I said, John, we rehearsed. I said, he sang, I think he sang, we'll be closest pages in a book, because he wrote a book. And uh, he said, John, I said, John, oh, John told me, Steve, I'm so nervous about this, or at least very nervous about it. And I said, oh, John, do you want to do something else that isn't? He said, no. I want to go through this nervousness so that I can feel what it is like to perform with nerves. Now, that was very wise of him, because he yeah. played lyrics for songs. And I, I always remembered that, that he wanted to have that experience and didn't want to run away from that. And who else was there? James Dickey, who wrote Deliverance. He got up and sang. Marion Seldes got up and sang that night. Oh, really? Oh, was an actress. And uh, it was funny getting people to sing who never sang. And that, that was fun. And they were apprehensive, but audiences already were predisposed. They all loved them. So I think the glow of the applause helped their nerves. So you were talking about conducting for Liza Minnelli on Broadway. So uh, that leads me to ask you about the play that you were in on Broadway, which was Present So Laughter. did you have to audition for that, or were you offered uh, the I part? Th I think, I forget um, whether I read something about that, or maybe an agent of, I think an agent of that who had worked a little bit for me or whom I knew as a friend said, oh, there's this play, they need, they're looking for a piano player and someone who could play a part in the play. And I love Noel Coward, so I thought, well, all right. So I remember just working up this little song and, and uh, going and auditioning for it, never thinking too much about it, but then I, I got the part. I mean, I sang and I read some, but maybe I, they could sense that I was Englishy enough, but the director had a um, specific idea about the show, meaning mm -hmm. that he wanted me to play in the half hour beforehand in front of the curtain, and then in the middle with three acts, 
and play in the Middle East. So he wanted the music, musical songs from those days to be in people's minds and consciousness before the play started. And then the play, then I played the, the ballet. I went to see this at third floor Lincoln Center. You know, you can go and see all these old plays. You, you, mm. may, you may have done that already. You can see things mm -hmm. that have been filmed on Broadway for years and years and years. And I went, they had, a, they had a film of this production from 1997, I guess it was. And it was interesting seeing the younger me and Frank Langella was an absolute brilliant farceur. You think of him as playing heavies and kind of strange, maybe darker parts, but he was hilarious as Noel Coward. Really was marvelous and so many great people were in it. That was a, a wonderful experience for me and something un, undreamed of. I mean, who would ever think that this cabaret performer would have a Broadway role, mm -hmm. especially in a play that was so witty and funny and so close to my own sensibilities as far as being lover of Noel Coward. That was a great treat, I must say. That was a lot of fun. So do you enjoy acting as well as singing? You, yeah, do you... I mean, I've had long talks about the differentiation or what you do. I would like, yeah, I mean, I did a little bit of acting in this Love Noel thing, which you may have seen, this recent thing I did with Katie Sullivan, did you? Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. it, it's going to be maybe made out oh, in a different form. There will be a way to see it. I hope so. I would love for you to see it because mm -hmm. it was so marvelous to do it with her. Uh, you know? But she, I adore her. She and I are a great compliment. She's worked with many, many wonderful singers, and I'm thrilled that she likes to work with me, too, pianist. Uh, we, we got on great with that, and... Uh, I did acting in that. I did, because this was the first time I had to impersonate or portray, uh, well, it was also another Noel Coward character. In the, uh, in the present laughter, I acted, I portrayed his Cockney valet. So I had to get, all had to get a, a, a Cockney accent. I had to do all that, and a walk, and a walking and everything, and that was, I had, it was a gas. I loved doing it. And, uh, so when I had to portray Noah Coward as opposed to singing Noah Coward, it was right at the next, it was right nearby, it was in the next room. It wasn't a big leap for me. I wasn't being asked to play a longshoreman or something yeah. from, from uh, Eugene O'Neill. It was very, very close to me. I've been singing in the style of it, and this one, I coached with the accent, and I figured all that out and how to do it. And I must say, I enjoyed it a lot. I would love to to try it again. I don't know whether there would be. I mean, there. Are, I probably in the world of possibility. I doubt that it will happen because there are so many people doing. There's hundreds and hundreds of actors out of work. Why would they pick me? Unless this strange chance of looking for a, a an actor who played the piano. I mean, those roles are not falling off the tree, are they? They're, that was a very very specific mm -hmm. uh, choice that the director made. Um, I'd love to do it again. I, what I'd love to do is something that I, what many actors do, is to get a chance to portray a character that isn't me in everyday life. A real bastard, a real, something really angry, somebody really different. Like the women always like, play. I want to play the bitch, I want to play the, the person who gets all the lines. Because there are many of us who lead, <laughs> lead these genteel lives and never have a chance to explode and really express emotions that great plays often show. Uh, I would be very interested 
if I could ever have a chance to do that, even in a reading or something, I would be interested to see what would be unleashed by the power of words, not with music, but yeah. with um, you know, I know I know my way about emotions in music. I can express the love song and all the attendant emotions, and I can be every now and then. There's an angry song, <laughs> but anger is not that popular in song. Jacques Brel, you know who Jacques Brel is, don't you? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I do. Uh, he came from, that was this European cabaret. When that came to New York, no one had ever heard anything like it. And he had songs of derision. He had songs of satire. He had songs of anger. And we were enthralled that he made all of that work. Yeah. And so I have sung a couple of those songs, and I've really enjoyed it being a different kind of somewhat anger, disgruntled, sad, uh, disputatious person. I'm mean, not going to see uh, me doing an, e an evening of it, but it's every, it was very nice to display that part of my own personality lurking behind everything else, that, you know, the niceness, the gentility, and all the civilization and sophistication. We, all, we are all so many different parts, aren't we? And that's mm -hmm. why the, the singing is, is good. Now, of course, if you're an actor, you can do anything. I mean, the versatile actors can go to any part of themselves. They, they can do anything. They're supposed to be a million things. And they go up for it, and if they're clever, they can make you believe they're everything from a longshoreman to, I don't know, a, a, the Pope or something. <laughs> so it's much more of a, of a variety. And that's what the fun of acting is. They can go up for these various things. But there's a little more restrictive in the cabaret world, because you if people still want to go out and have a good time, I don't necessarily think they want to be challenged intellectually by uh, in the way that a play might do so. But there's more to be said for, in the beginning it was just piano bars and singing songs, but then the theater, the musical theater, so dear to you and me, started kind of approaching each other. Cabaret performing became more theatrical where they would have shows and lighting and talking and that they were they were theatricalized yeah. and also that was a trend that made it more interesting for that and I've seen very funny shows and very, but the the biting satire stuff I've also seen too there are companies who do it Saturday Night Live of course is famous for its, its portrayal of everything that's going on in the world and there are, there's a wonder there's a wonderful a uh, satirical group called Capital Steps in Washington. Yes. Is Washington being very ripe for uh, every kind of satire. They, they're those who do that. There's some other groups that have done that, but not, it's not mainly my thing, but the answer to your question is I would love to, to do something that would really be, show me as a horrible, fierce person. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might sell maybe one ticket. So another thing you did around... Oh, thank you around this time was you were in the movie Big. So explain sort of what you did in the okay. movie. I'm glad. As I said in my answer, I was very small and big. Have you seen the movie yet? I have. I have. I have seen it. Yeah, it's, I, it's charming. I mean, it's very sweet. And, and I guess if you were a, a young person like yourself, you might have identified with his desire to be big. Uh, that just came about, a friend of mine was supposed to be in it, and she couldn't do it at the last minute. They said, they need a piano for, pianist for this party scene. 
with Tom Hanks. So I said, sure. Then it was kind of a treat for me to go there. And, and I did it. And that's my one claim to fame. And, uh, but ultimately, they didn't even use my piano playing for some strange reason. Oh. Nor was I credited in them. But anyway, I had it. I did it. I remember I was on an airplane once and they showed it. And uh, right after my, right after the movie was over, I got up and headed back for the restroom, thinking that people would immediately recognize me and take my hand and say how brilliant I was. And of course, nobody knew who the hell I was. But it was fun. It's a fun thing to have done. It's my only movie credit. That's another thing I would like to do. I always wanted to to, to act on screen. And yeah. uh, when you see The Coward Show, I guess, you'll see a little bit of what I did. It was very liberating, I have to tell you, Charles. Very liberating for me to act away from the piano. And that's what I never get a chance to do. And so I did scenes, I did poems, and um, looking back, it was really aghast to do it. I, I would love to do more of that. The chances are slight, as I said, because anybody, they, anytime they want anybody, they can get a million people to do everything. But it, I would love to do that. Maybe when things settle down, if friends of mine are doing a reading of something, they'll ask me to be uh, something like that. Most people that think of me, it's nice to be your product. I mean, I am a given product. I'm Mr. Cole Porter, I'm Mr. This, I'm Mr. That, but they don't think of me as anything else. But maybe one time the the chance to do it. I just know it was very liberating for me uh, to be away from the keyboard and to act. Yeah. Well, that I'm... seems like as good a place as any to end today's talk with Steve Ross. I hope you've enjoyed this half, and I hope you will continue to enjoy part two, which will be available to you sometime in the next week. Thank you for tuning in.